0: This episode is sponsored by the International Educator. Many of you know part of my professional background is both in career development and education, which means I get a number of educators asking me how they can launch their careers abroad. If that's you, you need the International Educator, which connects English-speaking teachers with opportunities at international schools around the world. Not only do you find out about vacancies, but you get much needed information on topics as varied as housing options, tax free salaries, and professional development. And here's the thing all subjects and grade levels are needed. For limited time only, TIE is offering discounts on memberships for Global Chatter listeners. So visit TIEOnline.com and use the promo code Global Chatter to save on your membership today. It's 2022 and the great resignation has been a big topic of discussion this year. Starting in 2021, millions of Americans at elevated rates decided to leave their jobs, buoyed by the pandemic and subsequent labor shortage. The personal and professional reasons made by many definitely vary, but there's no doubt that at least some were motivated by a better quality of life, both mentally and physically. And that was a big factor in the choice Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu and her husband made to leave their home state of California and relocate to Portugal with their two children. Yvette is a Chicano mother scholar who works as an academic coach and consultant. She received her PhD in theater and performance studies from UCLA and is founder of Grad School Femmerting, where she empowers first-generation students of color as they navigate higher education. She's also the host of the podcast of the same name. She co authored the Grad School Feminine Guide Successfully Navigating Grad School Applications with the University of California Press and the editor of the best selling Chicanum Mother Work anthology. After working in higher ed for over 10 years, Yvette recently transitioned out of academia, and that is a big focus of this week's episode. But before we get to the reasons for that transition, we have to connect the different threads of her journey. We discuss how her upbringing as a first-generation Mexican-American impacted the lens she navigated the world. We dive into the hurdles that many immigrant families face as they chase their part of the American dream. And we discuss why prioritizing mental and physical health was an absolute need for her and her family. It can be difficult to leave something after you've worked so hard to achieve it, but as Yvette shares her story, you'll understand why sometimes putting your needs first can be an absolute necessity. Welcome to the Global Chat. All right. So I got Yvette with me and I am always excited because I bring on guests who I think have very different perspectives and very unique perspectives. And so as you've heard from the intro, you know, she's got a pretty interesting story that we're going to unpack today. And I know that you guys are going to enjoy it. So Yvette, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really good. Thank you. How are you doing, Amanda?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. Like, here's the thing, between the two of us, you look awesome. Like I'm looking at your bright earrings. I, I'm, I just, i I showered.
1: <laughs> that's all that's happening right This is now. how I stay functional. I was like, yeah, I was like, you up. are like
0: glowing. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, well, I'm not going to the office today. So we're fine. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, with all of my guests, very rarely is anyone in the same place as me. And so where in the world are you right now?
1: I am currently in the Porto, Portugal area. So that's northern Portugal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I've heard such good things about Portugal. And I we're definitely going to talk about this later on because I know I've had a number of expats who've been looking at Portugal. It's sort of like blown.
1: Like I, I literally yeah. read an article. Oh, my gosh. I know which article. <laughs> Yeah, are you talking about the one in the LA Times? Yes, it caused a about- stir in the, right. in the community.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I read it like last week about like, a, the base, okay, some I think of I people you're going, hate
1: Californians and I'm Californian. Right. So just- <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> I was going to say, it basically was talking about all these Californians moving to Portugal. And the fact that you know the article means that, yeah, it really, it was a thing. Because it, it just showed up like all good things expats, but- We're going to talk about how you got to Portugal in a second, but you've already alluded to it. So you grew up in California. Is that where you were raised?
1: Yes, born and raised. Right. Yes. Yeah. What part of California? I am originally from the northeast San Fernando Valley area. So that's like uh, north of L.A. And I am from the San Fernando, Silmar, Pacoima area. For folks who don't know that area, it's a predominantly uh, Mexican immigrant community. And um, that's where I spent kind of most of my childhood. And then I spent a good portion after that, after college, living in L.A. And technically, I moved to Portugal from Santa Barbara. So from San Fernando to Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, those have been my areas. <laughs> oh, wow. And I only recently started um, living in Portugal. So I've been here less than a year. And that's my first time moving abroad. Okay. So
0: you, so born and raised pretty much as far as the U.S. is concerned. I'm a Cali were. girl.
1: So I was like, I was like, <laughs> did I, you live anywhere else? You're like, no, no, <laughs> okay. I use the likes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's hard. It's a hard habit to break. I am definitely from Southern California. And when people meet me here in Portugal, sometimes they, they catch that accent too. So they'll immediately catch the American accent. And then yeah. in some cases, they're like, are you from California because of the way I say LA. I don't say LA, uh, I say LA. L-A. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell me so tell me get with the community that you grew up in. You obviously said it was a Mexican um immigrant community were your parents immigrants as well
1: yes yeah so both my mom and dad are from mexico Um, my dad was from the northern mexico area my mom from the southern uh, mexico area and i was uh, raised uh, by a single mom so my my dad passed away when i was about 12 years old of a sudden aneurysm and my mom was left with six kids so single mom yes six can you believe that (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh. I have wow. two, and I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Um. So that that was my upbringing. I was the first in my family to go to college, first to graduate, and then go on to grad school, get my PhD. And the eldest daughter in my family, which culturally speaking, meant a lot. It meant that I had a lot more responsibilities as a young child. I was kind of forced to grow up quickly or mature more quickly because of having to, to look after my younger siblings, help my mom yeah. out, all of that stuff. Yeah.
0: where? So you're the oldest sister. Where in the lineup? What what number of you child was?
1: I'm three. So I have two older brothers and I have a younger brother. Well, two younger brothers and a younger sister. Okay, yeah. sister.
0: And so, you know, I asked this question um, of folks who come from immigrant families, irrespective of where they grew up. Did you have a connection to kind of your ancestral ties. Right. So I've had folks on here. Um, I'm thinking of a couple, like a guy who grew up in Sweden, but his mom was Ethiopian and his dad was Swedish, I think by way of Norway. (laughs) And so did you ever have an opportunity? Were you visiting Mexico? Were you seeing grandparents or in other ways where you tied to the culture?
1: Yeah. In my childhood, we were lucky enough that we were able to go to and visit Mexico in the summers. Uh, We got to visit my mom's, uh, she's from Jalisco. So Southern Mexico, my dad from Sonora. So we'd visit my dad's side of the family. It was technically closer more often, but every summer we had an opportunity to go back and visit And I distinctly remember that feeling of freedom that I got when I got to visit my parents' hometowns because where we grew up in the San Fernando Valley, it was not the safest area. My my grandfather was actually murdered by gang members in front of his own home in California. Whereas in Mexico, we were kids and we could go out and go to the market, the little, you know, the corner shop ourselves there was a lot more freedom so it's just interesting to see kind of the the big divide in terms of our my family moving to to the us for better opportunities while at the same time you know they they left they left a good thing too there was there's a lot of mixed feelings there knowing kind of what my parents left behind and then the opportunities that they then provided for us because i wouldn't be where i am right now if it weren't for my parents' sacrifices, especially my mom's sacrifices,
0: you know, and I think you make such an interesting point because too often when we think about, and I'm saying from a U.S. perspective in Mexico, we probably the stereotypes would have it flipped, right? That mm-hmm. that Mexico would be the more dangerous space in this in the story, and the U.S. would be safer. But as you highlighted, no, there are there are communities yeah. that are just as safe in terms of what we would think of as safe. Exactly. Um,
1: yeah. The yeah. irony is my mom is one of seven daughters and she has one sister who stayed in Mexico. The rest, they all moved to the U.S. The one mm-hmm. sister actually got a degree, became a pharmacist. Her husband's a pediatrician. They had three um, children. All of them went to college and got, you know, their careers and they're all doing well still to this day living in (laughs) guadalajara jalisco mexico and and on our end everybody else in in the u.s I come from a working class family. We're all still working class and we're very much still, I mean, I say we, even though I'm in Portugal and I'm under very different circumstances. And even though financially I'm kind of similar, like not making a lot of money, my circumstances are very different because of cost of living here. But over in California, we've all been struggling financially, especially with cost of living there, inflation and so on. So it's just interesting. It's interesting to notice kind of these, these, um, I don't know. Uh, circumstance, circumstantial differences in between kind of my family, and then thinking about myself as a mother of two kids. And now yeah. all of a sudden, I'm an immigrant mom. It's like, wait, wait, hold up, hold <laughs> up. And now I'm the one having to learn a foreign language. Language? <laughs> I, I'm the one having to learn to navigate a new system. Again, under very different circumstances, I have yeah. a whole set of privileges that my mom didn't have. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's super interesting. So let me ask you this question. Growing up in California
0: and growing up in the community that you grew up in. Now, you did mention it was a heavy immigrant community. Yes. But how did you how did you see your identity? Because I, I am always intrigued by and and this is a question I had to ask myself, where your parents are immigrants but you're in a greater society that does not necessarily share that same immigrant story, although you can be in communities where they do. So how did you see yourself, you know, as obviously as a young person, as someone who identifies as Chicana, like how did all of that, and I assume, Bilingual? Were you bilingual? Yes,
1: yes. fully okay. bilingual. Yeah. Okay,
0: and I have to ask because sometimes, look, I used to live in New Mexico, and I mean, kids yeah, you be never like, know.
1: Some folks don't know right, right, Spanish. Right? Pero yo sí <laughs> si puedo hablar español.
0: Right, because we would be like, G-, and they're yeah. talking to them, and they're like, "I don't know a lick of Spanish, even though my dad is Cuban and my mom's I Puerto know. Rican." <laughs> that, it's so um, funny. And I, I don't even blame like a- them. It's, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but how did you start to, in terms of identity formation? How did you, how did you identify and see yourself kind of in this great? American story?
1: I think for me, the big, um, I guess, formative moment was arriving and and going to college. So arriving on a college campus. So prior to going to college, Mm. I didn't think about my class status that much. I didn't think about even my my race as much. I thought about ethnic differences between myself and my peers because most of my peers were brown and I had, you know, there were a couple of folks who were black there were a couple of folks who were Asian, but mm-hmm. most of my peers were Brown. And so th- we, we notice each other's differences ethnically, culturally, like where, what country is your parent from? In college, it was the first time that I realized, oh, wow, I, I'm working class or I'm poor or like, there are people who have access to a lot more financial resources than I do. And mm. that's when I realized, oh, wow, I am I am not part of the majority. Like I am brown, I I could I could count the number of black and brown folks in all of my classrooms. I was an English major, so it was predominantly in a very white major. Um, so that was when I realized I was also first generation, just mm. having a brown, my first roommate, having a brown roommate, she was Indian American and realizing her parents had advanced degrees, lawyer, medical doctor, her brother had gone to college. And I was there by myself without family Mm -hmm. and feeling awkward when they asked me, what does your dad do for a living? And I'm telling them he's, he passed, you know, he's passed. Mm -hmm. So I I think, yeah, for me, that first year of college, huge culture shock, Um, realizing so many things about myself. And then on top of that, Um, taking GEs, making friends, learning, and eventually conducting research to learn more about my identity. So that's when I started to gain a sense of consciousness and realizing I'm not just Mexican-American. I I self-identify as Chicana. I have a politicized identity. I understand this feeling of either being from neither here or there, being in this in-between interstitial space, and I might never truly fit in. And to this day, I still don't feel like I ever truly fit in in a lot of spaces and places because not only am I Chicana, But I am also, you know, um, in a neurodiverse family. My husband and son are autistic. I'm also disabled. I have a chronic illness. I, you know, I left my career in higher education last year. So that was a whole segment of my community that is, you know, I I didn't, I wasn't able to sustain all of the relationships because of my leaving my career. And Mm -hmm. now I'm building community all over again in a new country, having to learn a new language. So yeah, college was a big one, but that has, like, I feel like my identity is continuing to develop and shift over time. Yeah. We were talking about this off
0: air and, and some people know this, that for a long time I worked with first generation students to prepare them for college. And I'm going to ask you this question, knowing that I know what some of them are, some of the nuances of the experiences, but what do you think that people don't understand is really different when a student is going to college and they don't come from a family that has a at least either a history of going to college in this country, or and I'm saying in this country being the US, knowing that we've got both listeners, or a history of going to university, period, because they can sound like the the majority, yeah. right? I speak the language comfortably, but inwardly there, there's stuff going on. So what do you think people don't understand about that, that cultural shift being a first gen going on to college?
1: Oh, there's so much. I mean, when I think about being first generation, the way that I define it is that neither one of the parents has pursued a four year degree. And because of that, they don't necessarily have access to this uh, cultural Knowledge or cultural capital of learning how to navigate the higher education system. And that's what a lot of us academics refer to as the hidden curriculum. So what is the hidden curriculum? It's just knowing expectations, knowing what to do, when to do it, who to ask, how to get help, knowing that there is even help available. Is this, there's this huge knowledge divide of not knowing You know what are office hours so uh, the first generation students tend to think office hours are a time that a professor is in their office they don't know that that's the time that a professor is obligated to provide time for students to come and ask them any questions that they need so the first-generation students are more likely to not attend office hours because they don't want to bother or uh, just not not understanding the way that higher education works as a whole And the more that they learn, the more empowered that they are. And I think that's why I've been so passionate because I was that student that would keep a little notebook and write down every single acronym I would hear. And to this day, I get irritated when people use too many acronyms because I'm like, don't assume that we all know what you know. And sometimes I fall, you know, I, I run into that issue too, where sometimes I catch myself using acronyms and I have to like remind myself, not everybody understands what I mean when I use these terms. So yeah, the, the hidden curriculum is a big is a big thing. But then on top of that, it's students who don't realize that their background is different, but that it's actually a good thing. It's not a deficit. It, it is one of their strengths. And that's just realizing how far they've come. Uh, it's just reminding them that that's a marker of how far they're going to go. So that's the thing that I wish people understood is first-generation students aren't incredibly resilient and talented students. They're, they're, they're incredible. They have these, if you get to know them, like on a humane level, like if you get to know them as like holistically, not just in their academics, their GPA, their test scores, get to know everything that's going on in their lives. I get chills just thinking about the folks that I get to work with. And I, I just, I don't know. I get very frustrated at higher education because a lot of times they just become a number and they're not always provided the services and knowledge that they need to survive. And everybody should be, everybody has the potential to survive and we mm-hmm. should be able to, but sometimes they don't receive the, the support they need and they get pushed out. And that's what I want less of. I don't want there to be more barriers. I want there to be more doors opened. And I don't, you know, even though I don't think everybody necessarily needs to go to call it uh-huh. grad school to live a happy, fulfilling, successful life. If they want to, I don't think there should be any more barriers.
0: I think it's super funny that, I, you know, I'm in higher ed. I think it's really funny that those of us who are in higher ed or have been in higher ed, we're probably the first ones to say, not everybody needs to go <laughs> Everyone, everyone's like, go to college, and we're like, actually, it's okay. <laughs> you don't Well, do I was trying to t-
1: remind people. I'm like, yeah, like what I do is I help people get into grad school, navigate grad school. But I'm like, actually, it's not the answer to everybody's problems. Not everybody has to At go. All. And again, you can live a happy, fulfilling, values-driven right. life without necessarily <laughs> having to. go. But if you, if want, you want to, and go you, to. yeah, right. Exactly. I know.
0: I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm just like you don't have like. I have way too many degrees. I'm like, you don't need to do all of this. Exactly. You can do you, and have a high school diploma if you can make it work. But with that, with that sort of the groundwork, what what did you decide to do as far as graduate school is concerned, and what made you, you know, pursue ultimately a PhD?
1: Okay, so uh, I actually. Pursued a PhD in theater and performance studies, and when I when I say this, sometimes I think people get sh- a little surprised. Like, wait, theater of all things? You might think, oh, maybe my degree is in higher education or chicanic studies, ethnic studies, etc. There's so many areas that I feel like I could fit in, but I I actually was a theater kid growing up. So theater was my outlet as as a child. You know, uh, struggling with a lot of just issues at home. That was a uh, the space and place that was uh, free or low cost, and I could just use it as an outlet to to come up with other possibilities to dream and and for me the arts were always just a you know a, a source for me to be able to survive and thrive under very difficult circumstances. So theater kid from elementary, from fourth grade on through high school, always in some sort of play production. In college, I continued to do it until my junior year when I felt I had to choose between theater practice and theater research, and I prioritized the research. And so um, as I wrapped up my English major and didn't want to switch majors, I realized it was not the major for me, didn't want to spend more time in college, didn't want to switch majors, I pursued research instead, applied to graduate programs in theater and performance studies under the assumption that theater was going to be my career. I was going to become a theater professor. Perhaps I could do theater on the side, dramaturgy, stage management, acting, you name it. You know, those were the things I was interested in. And in grad school, I, oof, I... I faced a lot of toxicity and trauma in grad school. That's just like to cut to the chase. I did relatively well. I was, you know, I was advancing according to the timeline. I was getting awards. I was doing the research, but I also developed, I also burnt out. I developed a chronic illness. I had a baby and suffered from complications giving birth. Uh, I nearly lost my life. I hemorrhaged. I lost three liters of blood. I, 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 It was it was (laughs) it was um, it was rough afterward. I I suffered from postpartum depression, and I I don't mean to say this lightly because it was a really difficult time for me. Grad school was really really hard for me, and again, I think it just made me realize as I got near the end of my graduate school journey, and I was asked to be uh, on the tenure track job market and was applying for jobs, and I even landed interviews, and I realized I don't. I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to be in this rat race. I don't want to be working all day and all night. I'm already, I already have workaholic tendencies that um, I already have health issues. I need to slow down. I need to take care of myself. I need a job where I can have access to healthcare and benefits. And so that's when I transitioned to a career in student affairs or academic affairs. I started applying to those jobs and landed, my first job was at a scholarship center, and then my next job was helping first generation students, you know, primarily first generation students of color, so low-income, first generation, quote, underrepresented students, helping them apply and get into graduate programs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Wow! Well, first of all, thank you for the transparency, because I think sometimes when we tell our stories, we especially when we're listening to it, we have to remember that the person lived through it. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to go, for some folks anyway, to go back into that space. And so for you to be willing to share that. And and the, the second thing that kind of pops in my mind is I I can then see the correlation between your brand femorting I, fem, was right, femtoring yeah, yeah men- like mentoring, men- mentoring or femtoring
1: <laughs> feminist mentoring yeah
0: <laughs> because I would imagine it was an outgrowth of the work that you yes had been doing and I, I guess an intersection of your experiences right as because for those who don't know you know your work is to definitely help and guide those especially who are folks of color yes through the graduate school journey and kind of the steps through that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, she was doing it here. And I could see how she got here. Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that where it sort of came out of uh, or t- say more? You
1: know, I wasn't even sure if I was going to pursue it as like my main job because I arrived at this point last year during the pandemic. Where I had my second child, and I was working full time, and starting to have health flare-ups, and my mental health was not doing so great, and I was homeschooling. So homeschooling my my older son, I was like homeschooling, breastfeeding, working, you know, managing a team. I realized this. I like something's got to give. I cannot. I cannot do this. I can't be working all day and all night. And in that breakdown, I realized, well, okay, then if I need to take a break. How can I make this a possibility? So that's when I realized I can no longer stay in California. Cost of living is way too high. I need to move out of California. So in thinking about options out of California, which is where some other states came into the picture and other countries came into the picture and we somehow landed on Portugal. So we kept thinking of reasons to say no to other areas. Like maybe it's too cold, maybe it's not diverse enough, maybe the language would be too tricky to navigate, maybe healthcare there is not so great, maybe it's not the safest area. But when we landed on Portugal, we didn't have any like major red flags or issues that we were concerned about. And so we decided to to move there last year thinking I'm going to take a break. But in actuality, I, I think with the work that I'm doing now it it's nourishing i'm not doing it to the point where i'm burning myself out and so i decided to just i already had a podcast called grass school femtoring and i did that on the side answering questions that people asked me because I realize I only have enough time and hours in the day to mentor students and for folks who I can't reach all the time, and I keep getting the same questions over and over again. I'm going to be sharing this. Information. I believe in accessibility. That's a huge one for me. I don't think that anybody should be without the resources and knowledge to do what they want to do. And so that the podcast is called grad school femme touring. And in my move, I decided actually let me try this out. Let me like start an LLC and see where it goes. And that's how where I've been. It hasn't even been a year yet. And I'm still figuring it out. I'm still trying to learn <laughs> what this is. But what I know is that it incorporates a lot of the values that I hold, which is I really value and prioritize kind of being very compassionate having a social justice informed lens s- treating people holistically and supporting them and I, and supporting them through the things that I do and do well which is writing organization and you know uh giving people pep talks sometimes <laughs> <laughs>
0: So if you're listening back from before the break, Yvette was talking about how her and her family made the decision. So her her husband and two kids made the decision to move to Portugal. And I want to backtrack just a little bit because I know for all of us, we've been living through the COVID pandemic. And for many of us who at least have had the privilege or the ability to do this, we've been reevaluating some of the things and the priorities in our own lives. And I know beforehand you talked about, you know, between the busyness of your schedule, the health needs that you had, everything, you know, having a family, having a career, whatever, that there had something had to give because, and obviously you lived in California, which is one of the most expensive states in the United States in general. Mm -hmm. Was there a catalyst that you went, you and your husband were like, Hey, we're going to move. Or was it just sort of the back of the mind that just moved to the front of the mind? Like, what was the thing that made you go, we got to leave?
1: Well, I know that I kept having breakdowns, but I, I, it's, it's so funny. I distinctly remember it was Mexican Mother's Day, May 10th, 2021. So not even that long ago that I had one of those breakdowns and I realized I cannot do this anymore. I just, I just cannot, like, it's not possible for me to keep going this way something something has to happen and when we ran the numbers so we looked at our budget we looked at our income we looked at our savings the math wasn't adding up with staying in California so that was the moment and that was the day that I realized we're we're moving we're moving we don't know 100% where we're going but we're moving and then in having this conversation and it was a matter of probably a day or two of just talking over it, long conversations, doing our research. We landed on Portugal. So it wasn't like for many weeks we're trying to figure out. No, no, no. Like we're very decisive people. My husband and I were both Virgos. <laughs> Me too! No, when, when's your birthday? September nine. <laughs> Thirteenth. Oh, <laughs> my my, so- my husband, my hot partner, he's the sixteenth. I'm like okay, A we're week older so than him. <laughs> we're, we're
0: all such Virgos. I'm just like yeah. So we're like the same person, but not. It's and very people funny.
1: Thought we were like we something was wrong with us that we went nuts. Like so, they're like, "I what you're moving?" You're, and now you're saying you're moving abroad. Now you're saying we're moving to Portugal. We're like, yes, we are. Are you sure? And, and we were so sure because we are very clear about what our priorities are, what our values are, the type of that we want. And it checked all the boxes. So we moved here sight unseen six months after that point. So from that moment up until then, it was just, okay, let's execute this. So how, do, yeah. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you a follow-up question. Cause I already know for those who are thinking about moving and where, I, these are some of the common questions people would probably say, and I'm sure you got this right. So obviously we know a little bit about your career and you guys do. What I tell folks is that you, did, first of all, you need to know what your numbers are, right? Like yes. you just need to know with what you're working with and what you can live on. What was your husband, was your husband working? And if he was, what was he doing as well?
1: So he was in the life insurance industry. And prior to that, he was in, uh, what is it like? tech uh, like technology management yeah and he was trying to get out so he was trying to get out of that industry he's like yep no in uh insurance is not really my thing and uh he's still in transition right now so he's transitioning going into coding right now yeah and i was also trying to transition so with him with his life insurance and he also is a former uh, marine corps he's a marine corps veteran i should say yeah Uh, not a former veteran but he is a veteran and yeah. so, yeah, we did the math. We we're like, okay, let's take a look at like the support you get from your Marine Corps background, from your insurance and yeah. work, and then from your coding, like as a side hustle. And then if I start to then do take on like my coaching, which I have always kind of did coaching and editing a little bit here <laughs> and there on the side. Yeah. Let's put that, let's combine it. And we had a safety net. So our huge safety net, which continues to be a safety net for us now because our income is unstable, is that we had bought a home in 2020 in Santa Barbara and mm. we sold it in 2021. <laughs> and we yeah. made we we made a profit. Yeah, we still right. we had taxes to pay and all of that, but we still made a profit. And that has been our safety net is knowing, okay, we have a certain amount of, of income saved up that's just there as the safety net in case anything happens in case we just you know to make ends meet when when income is not as steady or as high as we'd like it to be yeah so here
0: here's uh, and this is kind of a layered question and I will, I will get to my point in a second
1: where did your husband grow up He actually grew up in the same area as me. Um, So in the Northeast San Fernando Valley, a different city, but still in Northeast San Fernando Valley, still an immigrant community. Um, His family is actually uh, from Vietnam. So he's Vietnamese American, um, but very similar background as me. We both grew up working class. We both grew up with um, immigrant parents and we both are from the same community. Yeah. Okay. This is where I'm going with it. So
0: you get a PhD, which I'm sure was a source of pride for quite a few folks, at least in your family. At least somebody in your family was happy, (laughs) right? What does, and I've asked this question of, 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 I've especially asked this of of African-American women. Mm -hmm. What was it like to say, look, I'm leaving higher ed, I'm leaving you know, this PhD life, at least is in the way most people think of it, working in kind of the ivory tower, academia, whatever, to move to this country that I'm sure most people in your family have not been and lived in, neither, you do not speak the, I mean, yes, you speak Spanish, and it's very close to Portuguese, but what was sort of the response, and I'm interested, because both of you come from immigrant families, were people like, what are you doing, or were folks just like, That sounds about right. That's what y'all would do.
1: (laughs) So the response, you mean my husband's response or my family, our family's response? Your your family's responses. Well, at first they thought we were joking. Okay, yeah. And then when it set in, um, I think there was a lot of fear. So a lot of people were like, are you sure? Are you going to be okay? What if this? What if that? A lot of what ifs. And then after that, there was that acceptance and realizing, well, you, you have, Always done things a little bit differently as everybody else. And we've always been kind of like quirky, a little bit different. Just even me being in a biracial relationship was different than the rest of my family. So it wasn't a huge, huge surprise. They're like, well, you, you know, you're the first to move away at, to go to college. You're mm-hmm. the first to move out of the San Fernando Valley. We moved to, you know, LA and then Santa Barbara. So this mm-hmm. is just an extension of that. Yeah. Okay.
0: So family-wise, and and kind of the same with his family where they just like
1: well his his uh, he's not close to a lot of his family but his siblings which he's close to were not surprised his father was just like wait what like (laughs) how and he was very very worried but when when we explained to him like everything, like once you talk numbers and like we'll be okay financially, all of that, uh, and we you know found a place to stay, all of that, I think he he's come to accept it <laughs>
0: and i I asked I this because a couple months ago, I had Kentia Mecklemore gonzalez on, and so she's she's biracial, dad was black, mom was white, and her husband is Latino. And when they decided that they were gonna move abroad for her parents her dad have been in the military and then he never flew again after that right yeah so that was yeah. like decades ago and her mom never traveled and then his parents you know have an immigrant story when they decided they first moved to the Dominican Republic and then they moved to Taiwan she was telling me about how they were like, where, why, like, yes. why? and, I, and A I, lot and I,
1: of questions. So we right. I, we created I, an FAQ. Like, I sent right. them a Google Doc link. <laughs>
0: and, and that's what I was going to say, is that for a lot of immigrant families, like, coming to the U.S. was the thing. And yeah. so then they kind of look at their children are like, why wait, why f- are you leaving? Especially yeah. if they're going to, and this is not all the cases, but especially if they're going to a region where the parents left, they're like, oh. why are you going back?
1: Well, it's interesting because my hus- my husband's dad is planning on retiring in Vietnam. So he's moved here from Vietnam, right? Has lived and worked all his life here, right. and he's planning to retire yeah, but- over there.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> it's it's just super. But funny. Somehow They're- it's not okay for us
1: to move. Abroad. Right?
0: They're just like, but they don't. Why are you going there? <laughs> Oh my <laughs> so, goodness. so I, I that just sort of stuck out to me. But the uh, the other thing, and and we've been talking about this, you know, for those of us who work in ed or work in ed adjacent, at least in the U.S., we are seeing trends of folks leaving K twelve, which is um, our you know secondary and elementary school levels. We are seeing people leaving higher ed. You and I are both in higher ed, yeah. and. You know, I can imagine with the work that you're doing that you are getting people who are leaving higher ed and student affairs. And and so for those who don't understand, can you kind of explain what you what you are seeing and what you saw and what kind of even for you, why leaving higher ed made sense?
1: Yeah. So I guess just to provide a little bit of a context about the state of higher ed in the United States, to my knowledge. This is the case across the board is that a lot of um, the faculty side, a lot of tenure track faculty lines are being replaced by adjunct faculty lines. These are part time contingent employees who make in many cases, below the minimum wage. So they're not making a a living wage. They don't get access to benefits. And with this in mind, they are struggling. A lot of them are struggling. Even those that do get the coveted tenure-track jobs and do have a decent salary, because there's not enough of them, they're being overextended and, in many cases, exploited. And so on both ends, you're seeing folks who are trying to leave because the work that they're asked to do is not sustainable. And it's not compensating them appropriately. Uh, So that's what's going on on the faculty side. And then on the staff side, you're seeing similar issues of uh, salary compression. So the salaries are not competitive. Staff are not getting the support they're needed. They're needed. A lot of times staff lines get cut altogether and all of a sudden someone leaves in that that uh position isn't getting replaced with someone, so then individuals are taking on multiple jobs and responsibilities outside of their job description. They're getting promoted and not getting any salary increases and that was the case in my case i you know I was not getting paid adequately for the role that I was providing, and I did get a promotion. I did not get a salary increase, and uh it was just more work and not you know, appropriate compensation to the point where it just became unsustainable. So on, on both ends, it's, it's really, really tough. And at the end of the day, it ends up affecting the people that deserve the help and support that they need, the people that you're there to serve, which is the students. And so I like being really open and honest about this because I think it's important also for students to understand what's going on in higher ed and why there is this mass exodus. And it is a microcosm of the great resignation, which I too am part of, of folks realizing with the pandemic, one, the system was already broken to begin with, but then it's even more visibly broken and then two, people are having like life-death situations or reminded of of their the shortness of their life, that they start to reevaluate their lifestyle, their values, what they do. That was the case for me. That was very, very true for me. I reevaluated things, realizing actually this no longer kind of aligns with what I see myself doing with my life. And I love what I do and so at the core of what I do I continue to serve the population that I've always wanted to serve which is primarily first gen people of color and it's not just students it's it's interesting because I am also supporting individuals who are young professionals or early professionals in their career who are trying to transition out and in some of those cases they're transitioning careers and needing to get an advanced degree to go that route so they might want to become a social worker or they might want to become um, I don't know, librarian, then they they need to get that advanced degree for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like you're talking, and I'm like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) In in a nutshell. All of that, (laughs) if you,
1: and And we didn't even get to talking about all the other issues of higher ed, like like white supremacy and classism and sexism and ableism. Because trust me, I can talk about all those things too.
0: And and here's and I have friends who are pursuing PhDs, and particularly people of color, and just the stress i you know i have one who a friend who just completed and she's also amazing shout out to tiffany smith Mm -hmm. abroad in in ed is her podcast nice but yeah the stress of the system but then also the stress of the job Mm -hmm. and 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 you're right the amount of responsibilities that people are being added to and so i would imagine that you know with your podcast with your visibility um and 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 even the interviews that I've seen you've done, that there are people who are reaching out to you and saying, "Oh my gosh, I'm I'm a I'm either a I'm trying to get out, or B I'm trying to get out and be abroad, i.e. I'm trying to be <laughs> I'm trying to be like what you're doing, right? Not maybe not necessarily, but even are trying to figure out, can I, I I just have to I need a break. And so I'm curious, even with the clientele that you're seeing, because obviously you are coaching people through you're doing career guidance, yeah. you're doing your podcasting. Are you seeing higher ed educators that are reaching out that either want to stay but go abroad or want to leave completely the field?
1: Um, you know, I have had fewer folks come to me wanting to go abroad, but I have had a good portion of folks who come to me who are trying to either leave the field or change it up. So I, I've uh, worked with graduate students who have transitioned and applied to transfer programs. So they realize their program is not, is toxic, not supportive, and they're trying to transition to a completely different discipline. Um, I'm seeing folks who are trying to leave higher ed completely, and that includes folks leaving their graduate programs and trying to figure out a plan for what comes next or folks who recently graduated and trying to land their first job. I primarily work with folks who are trying to land jobs outside of academia and outside of the tenure track line. I've, I've been helping folks with getting jobs like, you know, director level positions, assistant, associate, director level positions still in higher ed, but more alternative academic, more kind of staff type positions. And then there are folks, yeah, who are trying to to make that transition and um, leave academia altogether, but into a different type of career. And again, they come to me because they're they need guidance on coming up with a plan, following through with it, or applying for a program or applying for a job in which I can support them through their documents, through their mock interviews, through just every step of the of that transition. Yeah.
0: So let me ask you this now, because obviously you've been in Portugal for about six months at this point. You were you were practically doing this while you're in the states, and even while you're in your job, maybe not as 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 such a formalized no. level in your background, but you were doing it. How does it look like now that you're living? because essentially now you're your own small business yes, yes right yeah, okay yeah. so how is it different coaching now now that this is like your this is your main thing that you're doing like how how does this look different just from a because you're not y'all aren't moving from spot to spot so I'm not calling you a digital nomad no but definitely you are, not you're, you're to, <laughs> but you're an entrepreneur right? yes I so am like, so how how does this look different in terms of running the business now since it is your business?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, before I would do it on the side, so this was evenings and weekends and I constantly felt like I didn't have enough time and I didn't have control over my schedule. Whereas now... I, I've been telling people this over and over and over again. So I have a chronic illness and uh, or a series of chronic illnesses. And in the mornings, I don't feel well. I might have nausea, stomach aches, headaches. It's, I just don't feel great. But usually, uh, as the day goes on, my symptoms start to subside. Sometimes they go away altogether. Sometimes they, they just subside. And so I tell people I've hacked the um, time zone in the sense that before I had to have workplace accommodations to be able to go to work a little later so that I could feel okay enough to do my work. Now I can have meetings with folks as early as they want because a lot of the folks I work with are on the West Coast in the US. I'm meeting with them at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. their time and it's okay because it's the afternoon, evening, my time. And so it actually works in my favor. I work up until 10 p.m at night and I don't mind because I start my day a little later. And so now it's like in the mornings if I'm feeling okay, I can go run an errand, go out, take a walk. If I'm not feeling okay, I can just take it slow, take it easy and I still can, you know, go on with my day and do my work. So in in many ways it has it's allowed me to instead of pushing against the things that I have struggled with for so long, I'm leaning into the things like leaning into like, what would it look like if I actually don't fight my chronic illness and I work with it, you know, I support it, I ask, I um, honor my body and its needs. It's been good. I'm still struggling because I feel like I'm not making enough money (laughs) because I'm honoring my body. (laughs) <laughs> Which means I'm not working as much, but you know what? It's okay. Cause I can pay my bills and I have a young child and she's at home. She's a toddler. She's not in daycare yet. So I just remind myself it's temporary and I'm good where I'm at for now. So I think knowing your numbers, knowing what your long- short-term and long-term goals are, I'm doing fine according to kind of my own metrics. I love the fact that you're leaning into well-being, and that's, I mean, that, that was
0: kind of the trajectory or kind of the trigger for you guys, obviously to shift, yeah. but like just the value of wellbeing and being able to live life the way you want to live it. And, and right, like you said, like part of it is that y'all knew what you could live on yes. and you've done your numbers. And I, I feel like I have to keep saying this because what's hard is that when you want to change your situation, especially if you want to go abroad, a lot of people just want to go and do it. You know, it's like the, let me backpack and whatever. That's easier if you're single and don't have dependents. Yes. I've seen folks who are just like, oh, I could just go teach English and whatever. And they've got a teenager and I'm just like, "Uh, this is not going to work the way you think it's going to yeah. work. But I love the fact that you are truly looking at like holistically what worked for your family and what worked for you and 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 had the courage to, to be very honest, you did in a very short amount of time <laughs> to like have, because a lot of people think about this for years. And I've got yeah. people who it took them years and everyone's situation is different. But the fact that you guys are like, okay, within a year, less than a year, we're going to do this is pretty remarkable. How is it living? Obviously, once again. Intercultural family, new country, learning the language. What is what are you learning being an, an an expat and and living in Portugal? That you know, especially with all the different ways your identity has intersected and where you guys kind of come from and nuances. What have you learned the most? Kind of raising kind of your mixed family in like a location none of you have ever lived in before. <laughs>
1: What have I learned? Oh my goodness. So much. So I think that uh, coming from an immigrant family myself has been such an asset for me because the culture shock wasn't so uh, strong, I guess you could say. Uh, So when we arrived, I I had that expectation of it's going to be hard. I'm not going to know the language and I'm going to have to learn if I really want to fully integrate myself into the culture. And I'm going to have to be patient with myself. (laughs) I think that the language barrier has been tough. I get very frustrated because I want to learn and I try, but you know what? People are really nice and understanding. Yeah. And when I try to speak, they correct me and they help me yeah. out. So I appreciate that. I appreciate how nice a lot of people are. And uh, it's a very family friendly area. Um, so like folks will like get out of the way of you. They know that you have a stroller or prioritize you. if They know you have a family, things like that. I've just never had people just like, let like offer to have me cut in line because I have a ch- child. I'm like really? What? Yeah. <laughs> So that has been a concern of mine is like making sure that I learn the language and wanting to learn it faster than I maybe I'm capable of. Two, I am trying to build community and that's been hard. I mean, we we have we arrived here still kind of pandemic and still... Uh, trying to be careful. Um, I, I don't feel like I fully relate to everybody because I, there's the quote unquote expat community, which is a primarily white and wealthy community here in Portugal, especially where I'm at in, Por- in Porto. And I'm not white or wealthy. <laughs> and um, so for me, like uh, having access to a black and brown community is important. And It is a relatively diverse area. It's it's a big city. I see folks, I see like biracial couples. I see queer couples. I see folks being openly themselves and that's beautiful and I love that. But I have yet to like really build a strong community. I've made like one good friend who happens to be another brown mama. (laughs) Um, but I'm just giving myself time. It's like, it takes time to meet people and to build friendships and it's okay. I've got kids. Like I don't have as much time as everybody else. So it it might take me time to build community, but I don't regret our move whatsoever because it really does feel like the right place for us. We feel incredibly safe. We feel supported. I don't feel a sense of, um, you know, I lived in a predominantly brown community and then a predominantly black community in Inglewood, California, and then a predominantly white community in Santa Barbara. And in those communities, I felt the least safe in the white community. And um, here, I I don't feel like there's a sense of entitlement. There's a lot of humility in the population and folks don't come at you and like first thing they ask you is like why you're here. They don't come at you and first thing they ask you is what do you do for a living? I don't get a sense of judgment um from other folks i think people are just living their lives in unassuming ways and kind yeah. of everybody's doing their thing and i love that i'm like i just like to be able to go outside and no one's staring at me no one is catcalling me no one is bothering me <laughs> oh i mean I, we have so many stairs as a biracial couple everywhere we go, so many stairs, and staring at our kids. and like, what? Like, do you have a staring problem? Complete side <laughs> note
0: in California or just another place? In
1: California, but not here, not so in Portugal. <laughs> we haven't had that. Too weird much. to me because
0: in my mind, I'm like, California is mad diverse. I mm. would think that would not be the place, but also, yeah. I'm not Californian, and I've also been to places where I'm like, this is not mad diverse. I thought it would be, but yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Yvette. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't give people a chance, even though this will be in the show notes, to tell them where they can find you. So if they are looking for you or your podcast or coaching, where can they find you?
1: Well, the best place to go to is my website gradschoolfemtouring But if you don't want to go there, that's okay. I am also on a bunch of different social media platforms under the handle at gradschoolfemtouring. So that's Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. <laughs> so go ahead and follow me
0: there. <laughs> and we'll make it super easy because we'll have it in the show notes. We we'll also have it in our website um, on the Black Expat as well as the globalchatter.com. dot So They'll be able to find you, and I'm pretty sure some people are going to be <laughs> looking for you um, and as, as a listed resource. So, thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you so much for having me. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter. Or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com.